few weeks ago, I had the joy and privilege of speaking to our middle school and senior high students at Riptide. And I told them that even though that I could be their father, this is a rather joy because when I was in youth ministry, I was their brother, but now I can speak as a, more of a father figure. And I said, even though that we're separated by a few years, you guys were raised in much the same way I was raised, in the sense that your whole life, parents and educators and all kinds of people around you have uh, told you how great you are, right? You, uh, a kid draws a, like a little bit of a good stick figure, and the parents are like, oh, wow, that you're so talented at art. You know, somebody scores like the luckiest goal in the history of uh, at football, and uh, they're like, wow, like, you have really some great talent. I mean, so I was raised in the same way, at the height of the self-esteem movement, educators and parents just pouring it on. You are so good. You're so great. And so I told those students that night, unlike everybody else, I'm going to tell you tonight how terrible you are at something. And they were like, really? We, we come to church for this? Like, is this guy? And I said, yeah, I'm serious. And I said this, you know, and I use, have to use, you know, since I was talking to adolescents, I have to use a little bit of a, you know, in sort of a, what am I looking for? Sort of a interesting language. Sort of, a, you know. So I said like this. You are all doing a crappy job at pursuing joy. You're doing a terrible job at pursuing joy. And it's ironic because we are all hardwired for joy. We have been designed by God to delight and find joy in life. And so it's very ironic that even though we're hardwired for joy, I told them, you're doing a crappy job at pursuing joy. Because think of it. The person you marry, the career you choose, the friends you hang out with. And I told them, you know, whether you succeed and want to do great at school or whether, you know, you sort of uh, blow school off, you're all doing the same thing. You're just working for your joy. Think about it. Nobody picks a friend thinking, you know what? This person's really going to suck the joy right out of my life. <laughs> Nobody picks a career thinking, you know what? Sign me up. I am ready for, to hate my life for the next 40 years. You know, where do I sign on the dotted line? Nobody says, you know, right after their wedding day, honey, I would rather walk on shards of broken glass than to go on our honeymoon with you. <laughs> right? Nobody says that. We're all designed for joy by our Heavenly Father. And so a few years ago, I was reading a book by Mike Mason. I still remember the line. It stuck me in my tracks. He said, Most Christi many Christians know their Bible, but many do not grasp its message of joy. Many Christians know their Bible, but many do not grasp its message of joy. And so I began to look at my own life. How many years have I studied the Bible and have I missed something? Have I missed its message of joy? And this was actually when I was preaching through the Gospel of John, and I was at 
the Gospel of John, John 15, and I encountered this from Jesus. He says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you. The perfect joy that Jesus had. The joy that Jesus had from all eternity. No one ever walked the face of this earth with more joy than Jesus, delighting in His Father, delighting in life itself. And so Jesus says that He prays that He's spoken all these things to His disciples, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so I began to read all the Gospels with these lenses of joy, these lenses of delight. Have you ever considered as you read the Gospels, and you don't have to go very uh, far in all the Gospels, you can just go chapters 1 and 2 and 3 in all the Gospels to encounter message after message of joy, the angel of the Lord at the birth of Jesus. What does the angel of the Lord say? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. A good news of great joy. It's not for some people. It's not for, you know, just people who, who know, you know, a little bit of the Bible, at church, every single one. For all the people. This was the message of the angel. The Magi traveling in, these king astrologer guys from the east, it says this, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. I don't even know how you do that. How do you rejoice exceedingly? But that's not all. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with the mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. Just seeing the birth of Jesus. He hadn't done anything yet. It's like a double positive, right? You learned in school you weren't never supposed to never use, not use a, a double negative, right? But here it is, double positive. Rejoice with great joy. John the Baptist, he's even full of joy. And I know what you're thinking. How can he, isn't this the guy that eats locusts for breakfast? How can he be full of joy? If I had to eat locusts every day, believe me, I would be, you know, wanting some pancakes very soon to increase my joy. But he's full of joy. He says, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, and here's the word again, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. Ligon Duncan said it like this. And this is what I also told these young people because so many of them have maybe thought about religion and thought about church as something, a have to, maybe a duty. And maybe you were raised many of the same ways, kicking and screaming like I was many times, getting out of bed, wearing, you know, scratchy ties. We don't do that here at Trinity, but you know, you maybe have experienced this in your past as well. So Lincoln Duggan says it like this, you understand that the Christian life is a fight for joy. It's not the rejection of joy, it's the rejection of cheap joy. It's not the rejection of satisfaction, it's the rejection of superficial satisfaction. It's not the rejection of delight, it's a rejection of shallow delight. And so I'll say to you the very same thing I said to these students, do you understand that you are doing a terrible job most days of pursuing joy? Because every time 
You pursue joy outside of God. It's like a trinket compared to a treasure. It's a cheap joy. It's a superficial joy. It's a shallow joy. And this is what I told these young people. Don't you know that God designed you for God-sized portions of joy? I don't hear an amen. Amen. All the amens were at the youth camp this weekend. (laughs) And so eventually when you start reading the Gospels anew through the lens of joy and through the lens of delight, you eventually land on this parable of Jesus that is just one verse in the Gospel of Matthew. This might be my favorite parable outside of Luke chapter 15, the prodigal Son, and this is what he says. I'll read it again. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought the field. And so Jesus is saying something like this. Unless your Christian life looks like this, unless you are a man or a woman or a child or a student, and your life looks like this, you might be doing a terrible job at pursuing joy. A terrible job at living the Christian life because it's lived out of delight and joy. Last week I got home from church about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and I'm just coming in from the garage and I'm just in the kitchen and my wife stops me and she goes, sermon was okay. (laughs) But you didn't talk about the cost of discipleship. How can you leave that out? The cost of discipleship. And I'm thinking, can I just get a sandwich first? Like, <laughs> can, I do, can I do that? Uh, and, and I thought, I, I said, you know, honey, I'm, you know I'm only on week two of a whole sermon series on discipleship. I will get to it. But she was right, right? Jesus over and over again tells us how hard true discipleship is. Matthew 10, Matthew 16, Matthew 8, Mark 8. John 16, Luke 14, and I'm sure I'm missing a few, but this is what he says to all of his disciples in Luke 9. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And you think, what other religion's founder says you're going to have to kill all other competing affections? You're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to take up your electric chair. You're going to have to take up lethal injection daily. Following me requires a death to self. And so today I want to juxtapose these two great themes in the life and teachings of Jesus in the Gospel. How do you hold them? How can you possibly hold them together? On one hand, in the Christian life, in the life of discipleship, you are being called to the very Hardest task known to humanity. Pick up a cross. No other competing affections. Jesus tells you very plainly in Luke 14. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What is going on here? Jesus is saying something like this. Compared to your affection for me, Jesus says, compared to your affection for me, you have to hate 
all other affections by comparison. So on the one hand, the cost of discipleship. This is a hard, hard life that ends every day with a cross or begins every day with a cross. On the other hand, you have this equally prevalent and I would argue equally jarring theme of joy and delight in God. And these two strands can seem like disparate strands in the Bible, almost irreconcilable, seemingly incompatible, a mysterious tension that you might be prone to ignore. And here's what I want to tell you today. Don't ignore it. Bring them together. Here's why. You might say, Pastor, if I'm honest, growth in the Christian life does not and has not come easy to me. In fact, when I look back over the last year of my life, I can tell you quite easily that it hasn't looked like a lot of joy in my life. In fact, I could even say when I look back over the last five years or even the last ten years, I sometimes wonder, have I grown in the Christian life? Have I really grown? And if you'd ask me, what is your counsel for that? That I'm feeling stalled and, and stagnated in this life of discipleship. What's your counsel? And here it is. Cultivate and nurture a disposition of delight until you find the proper motivation of delight in the Christian life you will often stagnate in this hard life of discipleship and miss out on the fullness of Jesus why do I say it like that I say it like that because delight is not simply a byproduct of the Christian life but life but rather its proper motivation Growth in the Christian life is powered by delight. Think of every hard task under the sun. Every hard task that you could probably think of is always powered by a driving motivation. The Olympic athlete driven by Olympic glory. The driven businesswoman driven for economic gain. The maniacal football coach driven by winning the next game. Long hours, early mornings, a singular focus, all have this motivation, a great motivation to complete hard tasks. And so too, it is in the Christian life, is it not? And so too, it was true even for Jesus. The writer of Hebrews counsels us to fix our eyes on Jesus. What motivated him to go to the cross? He lays it out. The, he says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus had the proper motivation for a hard task. You could even say Jesus had the perfect motivation, a singular motivation to experience the hardest thing that has ever been done on planet earth, willingly going to a death on the Roman cross. Before Jesus experienced the cross, Jesus delighted. Jesus found joy in God. This is how Travis Agnew puts it. He says, until Jesus is installed or reinstalled on the throne of your joy, your efforts will be lackadaisical and your affections will be inadequate. And so I'm asking you today, have you ever installed 
Jesus on the throne of your joy? And might you need to reinstall Jesus on the throne of your joy to find the fullness of joy that Jesus longs to give you and God the Father has designed you for? Belden Lane says like this, only what we deeply long for do we ever really know. Think about when you might have been dating your spouse. I remember all of Lisa's family, just because I went to great lengths to capture like the best girl at the seminary at the time, right? And so all our family was, you better keep it up, buddy. You better keep it up. Because I longed to know her. And so I went to great lengths to sort of reel her in, if I can put it like that. Are you women offended by that? Talk to me afterwards. I will uh, apologize later. So Belden Lane says it like this. Only what we deeply long for do we ever really know. Desire is the great teacher and sustained, sustained desire the path to holiness. What I'm trying to say this is this. Friends, the Christian life is basically nothing else than a reordering of your affections. A reordering of what you set your heart Upon. And so Jesus says it's like finding a treasure in a field. It reorientates your affections for everything else you had previously. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that your joy may be full. Did you know that the fullness of joy is found in Jesus? Do you believe that, church? Because if you do, you will reorder your affections so that you are delighting in God. You say, well, I want more verses. I'm the kind of person I need more. Here it is. Jesus says it. That could, should finish the conversation. But I'll, 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 I'll give you some more. This is what David also counsels you. He says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So many Christians say, oh, the desires of my heart. God, I just go to church and God gives me desires in my heart. But what does David say? Delight yourself where? In the Lord. In other words, you can't have the desires of your heart outside of delighting in God. Actually, the desires of your heart are found right there by delighting in God. The Apostle Paul also says the same thing. Paul the pastor could say to the Corinthian church, much of what I'm saying to you today here, in fact, I would say this to you, Trinity, I am working for your joy. Do you know that's part of my job description as a pastor? Jason shall work tirelessly to increase the joy of everyone who steps inside Trinity Wellsprings Church. I have the most amazing job description in the world, right? How is it done? Potluck dinners? <laughs> Pizza in the beach house? By, uh, by letting a couple guys beat me at cornhole just a few weeks ago. That increased some joy. Not my joy. No, Paul says it like this. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you to stand firm in your faith. You, all, you only thought maybe pastors, maybe the apostle Paul was working to establish their faith. No. Don't you see how Paul connected the firmness of your faith with the working for your joy? Paul connected those two things in his ministry. Deeper disciples 
experience deeper joy. He says it again in the book of Philippians. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. And I might have just said for your progress in the faith. That's not what Paul says. He says, I will stay with you for your progress and joy in the faith. And so a pastor gets to spread joy among the people of God. A Christian gets to spread joy wherever you live, work, and play. If only you would grow in your faith, Paul is saying, you will experience a mountain-sized amount of joy. This was also Paul's, not only his ministry, but his personal experience, living out the Christian faith. Philippians 3, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, this great British word, Simon, as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. This is a portrait and a picture of Paul delighting everything rubbish compared to the delight in knowing Christ. And so let me say it again. Cultivating and nurturing a disposition of delight is indispensable for growth in the Christian life. Without the proper motivation of delight, you will often stagnate in the hard life of discipleship and miss out on the fullness of Jesus. So this week, our staff was, uh, does anybody have it? We were going through this book I put together, booklet I put together, Deeper Discipleship, Becoming Like Jesus, because this is what they have to do. Anything I write, they got to read. It's like part of their job description. And someone asked a very great question during our study. They said, why is it then if joy and delight and rejoicing is such a central task and theme of the Christian life, why then are so many Christians miserable? And someone else responded, because so many Christians are trying to make themselves happy. Or I might say it like this, every person has a competing joy. And when a greater delight is present in your life, not only do you stagnate and stall in the Christian life, but your level of joy is intrinsically diminished. And so I ask you today, what is the rival joy in your life that you need to uproot that is crowding out God? Most of us know instinctively. We don't have to you know, ponder this a long time. Each of us knows what is crowding out God, what is prone for us to delight in other than God. What is keeping you from pursuing true joy and your true delight in God? Finish this sentence. I need to delight in Jesus more than... How would you finish it? The Christian life is about reordering your affections. It's about cultivating a disposition of delight if you are to grow as a disciple of Jesus. It's about finding the proper motivation which is absolutely necessary for a hard task. And so today what I'm trying to tell you is the how-to. How do you grow? How do you live as a disciple of of Jesus. How do you cultivate a disposition of delight? I've already shared the first way. You overthrow rival joys in your life because you can't prioritize delight in God when a greater delight is present. This is what Travis Agnew says. He says, make no mistake, some of the things that we love are bad things. Of course, those must be eliminated. 
But he says some of them are good things in bad positions. What rival joys need to be overthrown for you to delight in God? And here's where it gets tricky. Is it family? Is it success? Is it a job? And here's where it really gets tricky because all those things, the family and success and job, all those can be good things, even great things, even Christian things, even gifts from the Lord. But if they are sitting in a God-sized chair in your life, they must be unseated so that Jesus can be enthroned upon your joy. Second, how do you cultivate a disposition of delight? You practice the Shema. Let me get it like this. My dad and I, when we get together, we will always, without fail, every single time, talk about Kansas Jayhawk basketball. When my dad got together with his dad, my grandfather, in western Kansas, what did they do? They talked about Kansas Jayhawk basketball or Chiefs football every time. Heartbreaking losses, all the bad officiating, championship games, the next season. When we're together, when we're on the phone, we're taking a trip all the time. It's inconceivable that we could be together for like 48 hours without talking about the Jayhawks or the Chiefs. If, we, if this were to occur, my sister and my mother might ask us, is, are you guys okay? Can we check your temperature? Is everything okay? So you might say we delight in these two sports teams. Here's where I'm going. How do you practice the Shema? You just don't know the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the God, your Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Well, how do you do that? Well, Moses tells you how to do it. He says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your house and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates. In other words, the way that my dad and I talk about sports every time we're together, this is how you are to immerse yourself in the Word of God. This is how you are to practice the Shema. The Word of God is the fuel of your delight. And so this week, the youth, I was up there, they were talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit revives us. And they said, Jason, you know, just off the top of your head, what can you tell us about the Holy Spirit? And I went for like 25 minutes, right? Because this is what I do. But one of the things I said was, where's, my, where's, where's the word? Where's the Bible? Come on now. I said, this thing, the word, loves to work in tandem with the Spirit. The Word and the Spirit love to work together. You can't say, you know, following Jesus in John 16, that the Spirit will guide you into all truth when you do this. God, I just guide me into all truth. I just want to follow you. I want to live a spiritual life. Where's the Word? Like way over here? No, the Word and the Spirit, they belong and they long to work together in the Christian life. And so how do you nurture, how do you cultivate a disposition of delight in the spiritual life? You practice the Shema. Lastly, thirdly, how do you cultivate, maintain, and nurture a disposition of delight? Your growth in godliness is not simply doing things for God. It's about living in God. Here's what I mean. 
This position of delight happens when you move away from Christianity as a self-development project. This is increasingly common now in the West. The kind of Christianity that will tell you, oh, you need to add Christ's patience. You need to show Christ's compassion. You need to practice Christ's forgiveness. All those are important, but Christianity can eventually be reduced to nothing more than a moral improvement project focused on the self. Friends, this is so tiresome. This is a burdensome way to live the Christian life. Just add Christ here. Just add Christ there to your life. Self-improvement with Christ in the back seat of the car. There's a difference between doing things for God and living in God. Whereby abiding in Christ and being present to Christ, you share and participate in Christ's own relationship to the Father. Cultivate and nurture a disposition of delight by abiding in Christ. Somehow, you are called to nestle in the very heart of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a mystery, but you are united to Christ. You live in God. And so you live out your true identity. You know that the Christian life is a participation through the Spirit of Christ's relationship to the Father. And so knowing that God knows everything about you, knowing that He knows all your worst sins, all your most shameful thoughts and actions, suddenly you are startled and surprised. Even when I'm faithless, you are faithful. And so this is not about only doing things for God. This is a living in God. There must be a thousand different ways to cultivate, to find a disposition of delight. And what I want to say to you is, maybe be like that man in the field. I wonder how hard and long he had to dig to find the treasure. Maybe for some of us, you will need to do some digging in your life to find and maintain a disposition of delight and joy in God, but it is so, so worth it. Let's pray.